Welcome to Autoholics Anonymous by The Autoholic. I'm Stephen Diamond. Today we are joined with Ryan and our good friend, Mike Venditti of Motoring Enthusiasts. What's up, Mike? How are you guys doing? Good. It's uh, good to have you back on the podcast. Last time was maybe a, a year and a half ago. Um, and we're in very different places in our lives and also driving very different cars, at least you were, um, and maybe Ryan. But we'll go into that in a second. Uh, we almost did have the chance to all reconvene recently this past summer uh, as we all ended up being in Maine. I was there for your wedding, which, you know, congrats, Mike, you're a married man now. Um, Ryan and I, well, Ryan so happened to intercept me on my way up. I was going up in the 996, and Ryan ended up renting a Audi R8 off a of Turo from Boston and drove it up to Maine. And um, we ended up doing a little uh, rip through the woods to a lighthouse while you were probably taking photos for your your wedding pictures. <laughs> it was very much in your in your honor, though, Mike. We were thinking about you. Yes, I'm, I'm sure. And I wish I knew that that was happening because I would have made some extra time to, to do that. Because you, had, you had much more important things to be done. I sure did. But I have driven my M5, I think, three times over the trailing 12 months. So I am long overdue. You're deprived. For, yeah, I, I certainly am. But what... Uh, what generation R8 was it? First generation? Yeah, it was definitely the first generation. I want to say it was like a 2008 Audi R8. Um, uh, V8. V8 with the gated six-speed manual transmission. And it was, a, it was a ripper. It had on a nice exhaust system. It sounded the business. And it was, uh, it was a lot of fun getting in and out of that and Stevens 911. And, you know, I, I think I mentioned this to Steven before, but uh, it made me appreciate his 911 a lot and what he's done to curate that experience because that R8 was a hell of a car. And I didn't feel like I was missing out so much being in his 115,000 mile 996. <laughs> yeah, no, they're, they're different beasts, but, uh, you know, the, the R8 was, uh, was a lot of fun, but I'm glad to hear that. Uh, you're not lacking too much with a, a much older late 90s 911. I will say when Steven got out of driving the R8, he had this shit-eating grin on his face that he couldn't contain, you know, trying to play it cool, like, no, I've got the Porsche, no problems here, but, you know, it was all written on his face. It's kind of hard to beat a high-revving, naturally aspirated eight-cylinder that'll touch eight grand, so I don't blame him. I actually, I don't know if I mentioned this to you, Stephen, but I got in a lot of trouble from the owner of that car. He's going to he bring that up. He was a curious fellow that, uh, you know, on my way from Maine back to Boston, uh, Mike, you know, I know that you go up to Maine often. Um, and maybe as we talk, you could mention, you know, anything you know about the roads up there. I would say that for me, it was my first time, really some incredible driving roads. Uh, some some of my favorite that I've had the chance to experience in New England, especially on those sort of fingers coming down just north of Portland by Booth Bay and and the other areas. They reminded me of sort of like uh, the Norwegian coastline or something, right? Like an oh, archipelago. Yeah. Um, but up, so on 95, on the way back, it's like you're in the middle of nowhere, essentially, and it's a straight road. 
And in a supercar like the R8, 100 miles an hour is like standing still. And so, you know, I may have touched 140 once or twice. You know, I'm not sure Allegedly. if I further any faster than that. But this is, uh, this is Booth Bay, Mexico, right? In Booth Bay, Mexico. Yeah, and yeah. lo and behold, the owner was was really he was he was infuriated with me and, and you know, went on a whole tirade about how he couldn't believe that I was doing such a thing and, and you know, wrote me a bad review on Turo. Because he so, was able to see how fast you were going in the car, right? Yeah, he was tracking it. And I was like, listen, man, you know, like you rented me a supercar. The last guy who drove your car, like scratched all the rims and, and scratched up the front splitter. Like I'm a considerate guy, but I'm going to go 140 on the highway. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting, right? Because there is an assumed responsibility from both parties. You both know what the car is capable of. So why are you surprised right. being the owner? kind of shocking it is and and also it almost seemed like he was happier to have someone poodling it around the city and damage it than for me to drive it in that sense right. so, just to park like, it on a cobblestone street get out and look cool and, and do nothing else with it Not, yeah. yeah it was Stuck made to do flexing. yeah curious but nonetheless it didn't dull my uh my feelings about that all right hopefully hopefully one of us could have that in the garage one day yeah, that'd be fun. So, Mike, when you're, you know, you're in Boston and you're going back and forth between Maine, because that's where your wife is from. You also now have a, a house up there as well. Um, what do you, you said you're only, you've only driven your um, M5 once up there. That's the E34, right? I actually haven't even had my M5 up there yet. So, I had the E60 M5 here over the summer, and believe it or not, it, that includes like three times I drove it. Hmm. This like the past 12 months, I never really got a chance to take it out, and that's because getting out of Boston is such a pain in the neck, and you sit in traffic to then get to the driving roads, and it becomes like a three or four hour ordeal because it takes an hour to get out and an hour to get back in. And after a certain point, I was like, this this isn't worth it. So I uh, haven't really taken it out that much, but uh, instead managed to convince my wife, my now wife, that it is a good idea for me to get a more practical family-ish car, since I'm now a married man with a dog, not to sound too millennial. Package. And exactly. And, well, I bought the most yuppie car you can buy, a heavily depreciated B8.5 Audi SQ5 instead to scratch that driving itch on my hauls back and forth to Maine. Now, Mike, that sounds very appropriate and responsible of you, but can we highlight a few of the cars that you mentioned to me that you wanted and were considering before you had this discussion with you? <laughs> Well, yes. I these conversations. I'm excited to hear what, what else was on the docket. Yeah. Mike was sending me like texts weekly about <laughs> certain cars he had an itch to get. <laughs> Are there any that uh, I said that stand out in memory? Otherwise, I could rattle them off. Uh, Maserati Quattroporte. You, oh. you wanted a, a Ford Raptor. You wanted an F-150 Raptor. Yep. Um, what else did you want? Those are the top that came to mind. 
Yeah, a W205C63S, which I've spent a good amount of time behind the wheel of one of those. And that actually changed my mind on forced induction engines. Wow. Um, did we... your partner in motoring enthusiast have one of those? Yes, he did. And he sold that for an M4CS, which he then sold recently. He bought what was one of the lowest mileage Laguna Seca blue E46 M3s, which he then sold for a record high amount on bring a trailer a couple of months ago. Hmm. And, and uh, now what does what he What did that go for, if I may ask? I think it was 92. Oh, my gosh. I'll look it up. E46 for 92. Yeah, it had... I want to say twelve or thirteen thousand miles on it, but it was. I, I don't believe there was a nav screen in there, and I think it was a slick top as well, if I'm not mistaken. I can't fully remember, but he he was kind enough when he had the W two hundred five to let me drive that. Yeah, ninety two thousand. Yep. Okay. Wow. I, I Before you go on to the W two hundred five, I'd just like to highlight. I loved E forty sixes. I had one. I cannot fucking imagine paying $92,000 for any E46, no matter how good it is. Wow, I don't know that it's a $92,000 experience. You know, it they smell like crayons and rattle. <laughs> the color, it looks like a crayon. <laughs> yeah, it looks like a crayon. It's amazing. It's incredible how we've, we've grown so... Um, the cars of our youth are taking off in value and people are, are, are dreaming of that, that ideal that they had when they were younger. And I think it's more the concept of the car than the actual car in that case that brings it to the $92,000 value. It's a nostalgia thing for sure. I mean, I, I have this like every Saturday morning I wake up and I'm like, Oh, driving time, which I never drive because I'm in a city, but that notwithstanding, I used to watch top gear, the real top gear, a lot in my more youthful days in the I late still, 2000s. Where do you watch it? Like, believe it or not, if you have a Samsung product for all of our few listeners, if you have a Samsung TV, Samsung has their own TV streaming service that appears to be free and they have a Top Gear channel and it just shows Top Gear 24-7. That's I, outstanding. I, I didn't know about this. Okay, good to know. So only reason to buy a Samsung product. I mean, it's a good TV as well. But. Fair enough. But uh, yeah, I, I just have these nostalgia trips and I'm like, oh man, the B6 Audi S4. What a great car. The, the B5.5 Volkswagen Passat W8. How cool is that? You know, that's like a $10,000 actually, depending on what you buy it could be 20 grand but good thing you didn't uh, get that <laughs> yeah well i'm i'm not gonna lie i was tempted when i was uh i guess searching for a purpose in, in my daily driver but i think the most ridiculous car was telling steve that a 2011 maserati quattroporte sport gts was the car for me like on paper sick right 4.7 liter v8 450 horsepower the best sounding eight cylinder engine note in my opinion and it's 
it has such a charm and pizzazz about it. And you don't see a lot on the road. There's probably a reason for that. But <laughs> I, how, how can you pass it up, right? It's beautiful Pininfarina design. It's got timeless looks. And they the, the sound is just so charming. And it's, you know, $25,000 for 50,000 miles. Car prices have been, this isn't financial advice, by the way, car prices have been elevated for the past two and a half years. Even now, they're still up 43% since 2019 on the used market. But these cars are unaffected by that, right? So as far as I'm concerned, it's a great value play. But then what you're doing is you're committing to holding an anchor all the way to the bottom of the ocean if you buy that car, if you're me. And then I'm no longer married. I was going to say, nothing says responsible married man more than a quadruple <laughs> well, you do, you do you have any children yet, Mike, that, that you know, you snuck in there without me realizing? Uh, I only have a, a golden retriever, so no real children yet. Well, so I think, Stephen, that, that a that a that a quattroporte would be extremely responsible at this particular point in his life. If he had to, you know, feed a child and start saving for for a college fund, sure, a Maserati could really ruin his life. But in the, in this particular stage, it might be the prime moment to own a quattroporte. In fact, I'm a little disappointed with your choice of an SQ5, knowing that you're considering this. There's always time, as as you stated, Mike. The the prices haven't moved on them, so if they continue to not move then uh you know the ship hasn't sailed there's it's still anchored at the port i think it would be a great fifth or sixth car for me at some point in the future the problem is if it were a fifth fifth or sixth car you really would never drive it i i i've been thinking about a quattroporte for maybe the last four years as well i think i told you about this at a separate a separate time Stephen. and comically enough the last time i saw one mike was driving over the tobin bridge in boston and there was a really nice one with you know they had those i think the the 2011 that i'm thinking of has those sport wheels they're sort of the flat spokes they're larger it's 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 a larger six spoke wheel um and i saw one of those in black going over the tobin bridge and i was like wow that is a hot car. And then and then I started getting into this rabbit hole looking at them. But you're probably right. Reliability-wise, cost to maintain. All that being said, as you bring it up again, I kind of want to buy one right now. <laughs> yeah, this feels like it, the opposite of an intervention. This is an enabler session. And <laughs> this what could get dangerous. We're the holics. Uh, yeah. yeah. I do have a medical condition when it comes to being car-obsessed and just thinking about how nice it would be to have xyz car i mean even walking around my neighborhood there's a a huge variety i mean my s25 blends in with most of the yuppies that have cars like that but you have brand new sq7s and rsq8 um the the most recent ford raptor and then there's a, a guy that street parks a, a TTRS, the, the first generation. I mean, a, or, and there's a guy with an RS7 and a guy with an S7, all street parked, all within two minutes of my apartment here. And uh, I'm always like, hmm, how nice would it be to have XYZ? But SQ5 was a safe choice, which is kind of boring. But that's uh, it's not something a little bit of, of 
boost and uh, an underdrive pulley or whatever they're called uh, can't can't fix on that car. Well, yep. so, so tell us a little bit about it. You know, how did you get from Quattroporte to the SQ5 was a big was a big pendulum swing. And so how'd you end up there? And, you know, how'd you pick this one exactly? So I thought with my head and not my heart, which is stolen from Top Gear, um, if you recall that episode when the three of them drove to the, the bridge in France and they talked about how you buy supercars with your heart and not your head. Well, I had the opposite experience. I was like, I actually really do need a car and prices are all over the place, but they're generally up. What car has been the least impacted, but isn't going to make me feel like I'm dying a slow death of mediocrity if I drive it. And uh, there, there was an SQ5 that popped up a mile from my apartment from an, an Herb Chambers dealership, and it was clean. 55,000 miles, 2016, Daytona, Pearl, um, gray, metallic, I think the paint is called, over black, white contrast stitching on the inside. And I was like, oh, this is worth looking at. And I drove it, and I was actually blown away by how quick it is. And the other thing I was shocked by is how engaging and responsive the eight-speed ZF Auto is in it. And I, I like, walked away and was like, all right, I'll do the whole cat and mouse game with these guys for the next two or three days, but I want to freaking buy this car. And we agreed on a price and came to terms, Halloween, actually. Um, and, and I ended up with the car. And I'm actually, like, pretty happy with it i mean it does everything it needs to do from a practicality side and then when i haul up to maine and like rip around to the back roads um in in the booth bay region it it holds its own i mean obviously it's not macan or a cayenne turbo gt but it's not bad and uh it sounds pretty okay it's not it's not the greatest exhaust note in the world but it sure as hell beats the Pentastar V6 in my wife's Jeep Cherokee. <laughs> or in my Jeep Gladiator. <laughs> well, how do uh, how do Megan and Maple, your wife and dog, like it now that you made the appropriate married man uh, choice? My wife likes the car, and she likes that it satisfies my driving desires in all season conditions up here or all weather conditions, but uh, my dog hates the car, but that's just a, a maple thing. She just doesn't like cars, so, but uh, it's, I mean, it's great, but you put it in dynamic mode and I don't know if there's a microphone that flips on or what, but there is clearly increased induction noise coming into the, the cabin when you put it in dynamic mode and it sounds pretty good. So I really can't complain. My only complaint actually is that the steering is kind of numb and lifeless. And I hate to admit it, but the steering in my wife's Jeep Cherokee is better, which they're both 2016s and they're totally different cars. But the steering in her car has more feedback than my SQ5. So kind of disappointed with that, but everything else like totally rock solid. I find that with a lot of these kind of SUVs that are based around more sedan chassis, and I'm sure Ryan, you can you know com comment on this. 
you know, based on your ownership at the Q3, but I think of my mom's GLE and the steering on that is so light and, and numb and it really, I feel like these cars, it's an afterthought of turning them into an SUV that they don't really complete the whole idea of what they should be like. They're more like, you know, stilted up sedans with extra headroom. And, uh, you know, the Jeep, I, I bet, you know, similar to what we kind of talked about last week, maybe it's, you know, part of the theater or maybe just the the end user doesn't really know what's good or bad. But, you know, a heavy steering is is more of a, a truck SUV kind of feel to it. And, and maybe that's kind of what Jeep is going for. Ryan, you're also a Jeep owner, so you can opine on this as well. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting to draw some parallels. I, I think that specifically, I, I totally agree with what you said, by the way, Stephen. Uh, all of these modern SUVs are afterthoughts for the for the for the car design teams, right? I, I get the sense that they are just saying, okay, hey, how can we pump out more units? get more profit using the tools that we have on hand. Whereas a Jeep is, it is it is what it is. It, it was designed to be a Jeep from the beginning. Right, and it, so interestingly enough, my Jeep actually had uh, has lighter steering than my Audi Q3 did. But I like the steering better in my Jeep, as Mike says, <laughs> than I did in my Q3. Audis are sort of, I think it's a characteristic of Audis that they have pretty numb steering. They're, they're very much, you know, designed to be Autobahn cars and, you know, just to get you down the highway as fast as possible. You're the German businessman. You you go from point A to B, you want no bullshit and you want to get there fast, right? And I think they're really effective at that. But if you like driving, they do tend to dull that experience a little bit. And it's interesting how I get more engagement and a little more excitement out of my freaking Jeep Gladiator, which is by no means an, an enthusiast car, right? Enthusiasts in some aspects, like different type of enthusiasts, maybe, but maybe not you know, one. Like an outdoor enthusiast? <laughs> right. <laughs> not, not a, maybe a, an automotive enthusiast, but Mike, when you change the modes on the car, does the steering not change as well? It's not, um, is it just engine and, and transmission? So it does engine and transmission, and there actually is a notable change in the ups, upshift speed in the transmission. It actually feels as quick as a double clutch, which as a guy that has spent a lot of time behind an E60 M5, anything feels quick. But the steering does get a little bit heavier, but only under load. So if you're going through a long sweeping turn, you're not really going to notice it that much, but if you're on a tight switchback, you'll feel it. But it's very subtle. It's not that noticeable unless you're an enthusiast. And um, it it could be better. I'm sure changing the tires could help because right now it's on um, Michelin all seasons, which is fine. They work exceptionally well, but um, it could it could help increase the road field because you don't really know fully where the the front end is, which can be a little unsettling at times. But it's a very controlled chassis. I think it's what the not MLB. I forgot what the the VW AG group calls that chassis. FQB, but it, right? 
something QB, right? Yeah, I think that's right. But it's it's a good chassis overall. I mean, I'm fairly certain it's the same chassis as the first generation of the Macan. And I've test driven a Macan Turbo, and that actually had great steering. But those were a little out of my price range, and people complained a lot about the air suspension developing a lot of leaks, which as a person that's not really trying to go too out of pocket, I, I much prefer the conventional springs and dampers in the um, SQ5. By the way, you were right. It is the MLB. I wanted to highlight on something that you said, and it's a total shock to me. When I had my 2022 Q3, I brought it in for service and they gave me a, a brand new SQ5 as a loaner. And I thought that that engine and the transmission were like total firecrackers and they changed the, I mean, it was, it felt like another world coming out of my Q3. They were so much fun. And I assumed that it had a DSG because it was banging off these upshifts in an incredible fashion. And I just looked it up after you, you said that and both your generation and the new generation of the SQ5 have the ZF8 speed which uh, it's amazing to me how they tuned that transmission because it totally feels like what you'd expect out of a DSG. And it gives you sort of the theater of that too. You do get the pops on the upshift, which is nice. And then mine has the active exhaust. So, you know, when you go above and below three grand, you hear the, the valves open and close. At least that's what I read online. And that's kind of what it seems like when I drive it. I haven't been able to independently verify that yet. But I totally agree. It's pretty theatrical. And so you mentioned you have uh, all seasons. Are they the Michelin uh, all season fours or something else? Or I you... should, I should know. Okay, but I you have, you have driven up to Maine, and Maine has actually seen some snow <laughs> in you know the lower northeast and mid Atlantic region here in New York. Um, so you said it performs, uh, tires are pretty good in the snow as well with the car. Oh yeah. I mean, there were multiple weekends over the past six to eight weeks where I was driving up there in literally four inches of snow on the highway on those stretches of 95 you're talking about, Ryan, that, uh, it, it handled it just fine. And then on the back roads, it was even more fun just because there's, there's not many people up there. So can have a little bit of fun within the confines of uh, John Q. Law. Does the Audi let you have some fun as well? Or do you have to change anything on it? You really need to put it in dynamic or, yeah, dynamic mode to have the throttle be more responsive because it's a little bit laggy with the supercharger and you need to shut the traction control off. Otherwise, it stays planted, which if you're just trying to get from A to B in as safe a manner as possible, hats off to you, right? They they did a great job with that car. But um, I feel like it's a forgotten car that people, you don't see them in mass, really. You see, and I mean N mass, um, you see a lot of that generation Q5 because that was a pretty affordable premium SUV in the low 40s to, to mid $50,000 range. But the SQ5s of that first generation, you don't see very many. And I, I think they're a forgotten about car. And I think that's why they pre presented themselves as such an attractive buy 
even when car prices were way up uh, late last year when I was looking at them. You see a lot more of the the current generation of the SQ5. They did they somehow did some great marketing campaign and and convinced all of people who were driving Q5s in the last gen that they needed SQ5s in the new gen because I see totally them. agree. Yeah. So what you have. Go, go ahead, Stephen. No, all right, go ahead. So what do you think of the supercharged six? So I think that gen has the supercharged six. I've driven it in my boss used to have a S4. I think he had a 2016 S4 uh, with a stick. And I drove it recently uh, right before he got rid of it. His, his was a little bit, a little bit, you know, beat on. He had a family and, and a dog and, you know, so it, it had seen some wear. But it still was a pretty impressive car by modern standards. You know, it's fast and like a lot of low down torque. I think that car, in, including the B8.5 and B8 S4, because they both had, had and the B8.5 SQ5. So in my car, it has been tuned, I think, to 350 horsepower just because it has to move 5,000 pounds around. I'm not sure what the extra 20 horsepower does, but it feels faster than 350, honestly. It is a great 30 to 80, allegedly, car both like both of them there is so much low and mid-range torque that you just scoot no problem and it's actually it feels faster than the e60 m5 in real world driving just because well one quattro and two you have all that torque i think it has 80 percent of its torque from 2500 to 5600 rpms which explains a lot in terms of um its ability to scoot, right? You have such a flat torque curve like that. It's incredible. This just reminded me, I don't know if either of you have seen it. Chris Harris did a video, I guess it was in 2014, 2015, when the new RS4 had come out. And so the RS4 at that time had a naturally aspirated, the 4.2, pretty much the same thing that was in the, Mm -hmm. something along those lines. But the S4, you know, the car that we're talking about right now had that, or, or, you know, the same chassis and same basic car as your SQ5 had that supercharged V6. And so Chris did a, a chip on his, or on, uh, I think on his S4 uh, yeah. wagon, and they, they raced that with the RS4 down the, you know, down the drag strip. And while the RS4 with those box flares and everything looked so dramatic, it was clear that the S4 was, you know, a faster real world car. Uh, and I think it, these these turbos are just so impressive in these modern cars. You know, I think a lot of people have talked about it. I think you may know, Mike, that I'm uh, I've just ordered a Cayman GTS 4.0. I've been doing a lot of reading on them, and many people talk about the fact that the pre 4.0 GTS with the 2.5 engine is pretty much just as fast, if not faster, in real world conditions. Right? That's shocking. I actually did not know that there was that much of a, or a lack thereof, a gap in performance between those two. I was unaware of that because I, I get so sucked into the, the sound and the purity of naturally aspirated motors. I tend to kind of write off everything else for better or worse, but uh, congrats on the GTS. That is news to me. <laughs> Thank you. You're not, you're not listening to the podcast then, Mike. <laughs> Apparently not. 
I it is queued up in my Spotify, and I will listen to to that on my walk to work tomorrow. <laughs> don't worry, you didn't miss much. Ryan just decided to. Uh, I don't know. Have we mentioned this on the podcast yet? Your your final decision. Did we mention it last week? Oh no, but I did decide to. I was I was debating over whether or not to do European delivery and wait until September to get my car or to get it now in May. And in the U.S. and and I said, "Fuck it, get it here in the U.S." I'm too impatient, so I would do the same exact thing. After everyone in my life, including Stephen, our buddy Ross, my father, <laughs> adjuring me about getting it now, I caved, couldn't hold out. And oh, and the dealer, he goes, "Well, if I were you, no fucking way I'd leave my car sitting there in a lot until September." Hundred percent. What? Yeah. Well, I mean, you also want to rush because there's not many cars you can buy today with a manual. Nice pivot. I tried. There are only 30. <laughs> 30 some odd models that you can buy today new with a manual transmission. That is correct. And this doesn't include things like the many variants of Porsche 911s that you can buy or Cayman Boxers, but... Uh, essentially 30 models where you can still outfit your car with a stick. One thing that I don't think they covered in that, and this is a Motor Trend who, who posted this uh, yeah, as an article. Yeah, Motor Trend article. And then shout out to people at Motor Trend for that. I don't think they go into, you know, how many of them actually charge you more for having a manual versus the automatic. Because it seems the... The, the tables have turned where now you have to pay more to actually have the experience of driving a manual. They did highlight it in, in the opposite way. They mentioned, so the Nissan Versa is one of the, the only cars hanging on to, if you opt for the manual, you have, a, you have a discount, right? It's, it's, it's one of the Versa. <laughs> cheap, like manual shitbox Econo cars that you can still buy. But it, you're exactly right. It, for example, the Integra, the, first, the Acura Integra, the first car on their list, if you want the manual, you can't buy the $31,000 version. You have to buy the $38,000 fully loaded version. Right. And same thing, I think, with the Supra as well. Can't uh, buy the four-cylinder, you got to go to the six. Right. So it's uh, it's an interesting dynamic. Um that the the manual has become a, a premium but you know it's funny demand right very funny how that the tables have turned in the same way that manuals used to generally get better gas mileage than autos and then because of technology now it's the opposite yeah it is interesting how they did that and what i think it is is that They've probably identified, you know, there are, I'm looking through the list right now. So there, there are 30 cars, right? And as we're talking, I'm clicking through. And some cars don't fall into this mold. For example, I think with the Mazda 3, you probably have to have the basic one to have a stick. And the Kia Forte, I suspect that the high-end Forte. I, is there a high-end Forte or is there just a Forte? The one thing is Forte. <laughs> Fortissimo. <laughs> There's the Fortissimo. music fans out there who know that um but i I just want to applaud these companies for still having economy you know entry-level cars that still offer manuals so you don't have to have d3 
deep pockets to have a, a reliable car under warranty but still feel very connected to the experience kind of a thing. So, and I, I know someone who's had a, a Versa for the last few years and it's a manual and he, he didn't know how to drive a manual when he bought it, but he bought it because he wanted to learn how to drive manual and uh, it's served him right. It's been reliable and, and he loves it now. Yeah. How's his clutch? Drive manual. What? How's the clutch? Is that what you said? Yeah. I don't know if he's on his second or not. But uh, I hope not. I bet he's, I bet he's still on his first. <laughs> I, you know, I've driven that, the new Versa in Mexico. I drove the old Versa in Mexico with a stick, and that car really sucked. But I've driven the new, I've rented the new Versa two times in Mexico. And I have to say, for a cheap car, problem is cars aren't so cheap anymore. The, the new Versa is, is like a $20,000 car. So it's not, it's not like the old days when you could say, oh, it's just like a $13,000 Versa. It's, 20 grand you know it's a lot of money especially when you consider like our buddy ross bought his new jetta with a stick for 15 grand and the jet is ostensibly nicer than the new 20 grand versa but they're pretty good cars you know um i did want to mention speaking of economy cars that are manual here i'm looking at the list in subaru has got a lot of their base models in a stick and I tend to hate on Subaru these days. I, I'm such a Subaru hater. You know, I've driven the recent Outbacks and Foresters, and they they really sucked. But it makes me want to go drive a base Subaru Impreza, knowing that they come with a stick. Like, it's an all-wheel drive car. It's got ostensibly some, you know, heritage from rally driving. How is that, right? Is that the kind of thing that could get someone, as you say, out of an automatic and into something a little more interesting you know, is is that going to create an enthusiast in this modern day and age? And maybe it will. And that's kind of cool to me. Well, I think I mean, it could. Yeah. I mean, I think look at all the the people who drive Imprezas and, and, you know, are manual and whatnot. I feel like the Subaru is a go to for young enthusiasts who want to still have a very enthusiast feel, even if it is maybe not an STI or anything like that, who still um you know, want a reliable car, something their parents are going to say yes to, um, but still be able to do stuff with, tune it, you know, and, and have an enjoyable, more personalized experience. I think the affordability of those is their biggest draw. And I think you're both right that there's this brand association. There's some distant relation to Colin McRae, right? Because it's <laughs> right. Subaru and... It might not be the bug-eyed car, the B205 or whatever it was called, or um, the, the square headlight one that most of us know and love from the mid-2000s, but it's, it's related to them. And I think that's just the biggest draw, especially if you're 18 or 19. And what else are you going to get for that kind of money, right? You know, put on the hat of a parent. Right. You want something that's reliable and safe. And because car prices are still so inflated, you're better off with that than having them pick up like, I don't know, a, a 2013 F30 335 that they're just going to, you know, blow the freaking turbos on. Or wrap around a telephone pole. Right. Well, I think there's a lot of, you know, 
there are some options that I think from when we were young are still options for young enthusiasts um, to get into and, and driving manual and, and driving something that's kind of reliable that the parents will still say yes to. You know, you have the the Subaru Impreza on here and, and the, you know, obviously the SDI and WRX versions as well. I mean, and then you have the Golf and the GTI, and those are kind of the two staples, I feel, that have kept that going for, for so long. Um, you know, I also remember a lot of Mazda 3s being in my high school parking lot, but almost none of them were manual, probably, and they're all mostly driven by girls. <laughs> but... <laughs> Yeah, there were there were no manual Mazda threes in my uh, in in my parking lot, I, my high school parking lot either. They were all automatics. And very few hatchbacks. Yeah, they were all the sedans. I mostly sedans. Yeah, I I think there was just a lot of the malaise era of affordable compact cars in my high school parking lot as well, me included, with a Mark IV, hundred. 15,000 mile GTI that smelled like cigarettes, not by my own doing. At least you had a GTI. I had a Golf. <laughs> a diesel <Touché>. Golf. <laughs> a diesel Golf. What, was your GTI a 180 or a VR6? It was a 180 that I took the air box off of so that you could hear the induction on the cabin or in the cabin and it actually sounded pretty good it made the car slower for sure i'm not an engineer but it definitely did because my butt dyno was like i'm not moving as fast but it sounds cooler so that was my experience with the mark IV gti so ryan i was just gonna say like you know you've owned a lot of the cars that are actually on this list um over the years or at least have driven them i think fairly recently you've had the opportunity to drive uh add some new ones to the list um that are also on these you know 30 some odd manual cars that you could buy today what were the yeah so i mean i own a new jeep gladiator right now uh my wife has a mazda miata not a 2023 but it's the same generation and over the last um, last week, I actually today I just drove a Cadillac CT5 Blackwing. Did uh, you really? Did I? I did. Yeah, my my boss has one, and it's wow, that is a fast and loud car, man. That's pretty impressive. He's got Soto Zeros on the on the stock wheels, and and you know it, even with those winter tires, you're struggling for grip. It's so yeah. funny today. I actually watched your review by Throttle House on the CT5 Blackwing. It's an interesting car. That is funny that you were looking at it today. It's a little, um, it's still like a GM product and it feels a little antiquated versus maybe some some other stuff. You know, it's kind of like tight in the interior, sort of like an old school car would be. But the sophistication of the engine and drivetrain is definitely there. And it's all about that engine. <laughs> That's what you're paying for. That's what you're paying for, and uh, there's enough luxury in the rest of the car to to go around it, right? The suspension's really nice, even though you have those big wheels. And I don't know. I think it has like 315 rear tires. You know, wow. that's it's 600 something horsepower. It's it's wild. Really long gears. You know, 80 miles an hour in seconds, sort of like a Porsche. But 
you know, I, last week I, I also drove, uh, I rented in Ontario in LA 2023 M3 with a stick. Um, and I had a 20 and I rented a 2023 Integra with a stick in San Francisco. And it, it's interesting driving the Caddy. I'd say the Caddy and the Integra were on two different ends of the spectrum, right? The Integra reminded me more of stick shift cars that I grew up driving lighter, nimble, not overpowered, you know, uh, but a lot of fun to drive. And, and the M3 was a little bit heavier and, uh, you know, a little clunkier, but, but still pretty, pretty sophisticated. And, and the Caddy just felt big, felt like a muscle car and, and it was a stick, but I don't know. I, I always loved the idea of sticks in these big muscular cars. But I don't. I feel that maybe the lighter, more nimble cars really do lend themselves to driving a stick more. It's more fun. It's more exciting. You know that I, I can't believe to say it, but maybe the most fun car out of those three that I drove was the Integra. Hmm. I believe that. I think you're onto something with that, though, because when I formerly had my E39 M5. I would occasionally go back to back from that to my E34 and the E34, despite being down on horsepower was so much more fun because that car weighs, I think 3,600 pounds in us spec. And the E39 is over 4,000 pounds. I think it's closer to 4,100. It's a pretty big difference, right? So you're, you're totally right about that. The, the weight and nimbleness really makes up for it in in cars like that that's why i think people will get so hung up on horsepower these days but if we go back to what you said at the start of this with the audi r8 420 horsepower or 414 horsepower from that 4.2 liter v8 incredible right and you could probably use not all of it although you did use most of it and and have fun whereas if you were to hop in the new R8 GT RWS, the final send-off to that car with 610 horsepower and a seven-speed double clutch, by the time you're in the top of third gear, you're going to county jail, right? It's just there's something to be said about the lower horsepower, more usable, lighter cars, I think. Yep. And having a stick in those just makes it all the better, right? It's like it's like my wife's Miata. The one other thing I'll say about that Integra was that it had a limited slip differential on the front end. I've never driven a car with an LSD, a front-wheel drive car with an LSD before. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. Stephen, I don't know what we were doing racing that 9000 for all those years without an LSD. We have one. We just needed to put one in. Holy shit. It is It is. It was like a transcendental experience for me. The idea that you're in a front wheel drive car and you're in the corner and you can get on the gas. It's amazing. And the car bites, right? You know, it it was, I didn't have to turn off the traction control. That's how good it was, how sophisticated the chassis was and and, and how much the diff was clawing me out of the corners. It was a transcend differential experience. (laughs) Nice. No, we definitely we definitely have to do that. But I, I totally agree. You know, you know, talking about the Blackwing and and hearing you know the review of, of that car, you know, and how long the gears are and you know the power 
on main roads, you're using maybe one gear, two gear, you know, second and third probably, and that's it if, if, when you're going around. And, and by the time you're at the top of that, you're going to jail. Um, whereas in the Integra and, you know, the Miata, you can use more of the gears, you're using more of the engine and, uh, you know, using more of your own yourself, you know, engaging with the car and, and making it go and do those things. So um, it's good that those things are still around and still able for us to to be a part of that experience. Yeah, it's good that the three of us coming from having a lot of experience driving really big horsepower, fast cars can still appreciate that, right? And we should be talking more about it because, you know, a car that redlines in second at 48 miles an hour and takes seven seconds to get to 60 can be just as much fun as your 650 horsepower Blackwing and uh, sometimes more, right? I drove it actually, Stephen, I drove it on the road to, uh, to Muir Beach, the one that we took in the Miata. And I can't say that I performed the ballet that I did in the Miata that day, but it was pretty damn close. Well, you're a trained professional in the the dance of the Miata ballet, but not not you know this was a new ballet shoot for you. <laughs> <laughs> but that seems like a great car for those roads, and and you know very reminiscent of of kind of our experience in the Miata, I, I imagine. Um, but yeah, no, I mean. I expected you. You wanted, did you, you put a deposit down for an Integra, didn't you? I did. Yeah. I, I put a deposit down and I chose the wrong color, which was the blue. And when I saw it in person, I was like, Ugh. Oh, what that color? The one that you, you rented? No, I, I went to go look at the, I test drove the one that I had put a deposit on. I came into the dealer and everything. And I said, no, you know what? Take, you know, give me my money back. I'm not taking it. Um, just it, it wasn't right with the blue exterior that you know white interior it, i just felt like it was a bullshit car for me coming out of the camaro and uh this one somehow in white it made all of the extra lines and noise honda tends to like put a, a, two or three too many lines on their cars right and the, the white sort of subdued it a bit and made you appreciate that overall you know for a car in the 30s it's a it's a pretty attractive thing. And then after driving it on the, on the back roads, I, I did fall for it. Yeah. I can imagine coming from uh, growing up with what a white S 14 or S 13 being your first car. It was <laughs> I have an affinity for white Japanese cars. <laughs> well, I would say Mike, I think I would, I would love to drive a, uh, a black wing, um, the caddy, um, based off of, you know, watching this review and, and seeing the experience that they actually compared it to a, like a C 63 S but with a stick. Um, and Ryan, I don't know if you have any opinion on that, but since you were considering a C 63 yourself, Mike, I really think, uh, it would be awesome for you to, you know, test drive that and, and kind of see the two back to back and, and let us know what you think. I definitely will. I mean, I fell for the C63S because it really is barking mad. I mean, that 4.0 with the hot turbos. Ah, God, what a freaking motor. Torque on demand, raspy on startup, guttural on full throttle, not too much engineered burble on the overruns. It's just a mean car, and the steering is great. 
and it disappears. I mean, I was chasing one down in an E60 M5 and could not keep up below some speed, let's just say. It's only north of some speed that the C63 struggled to stay with me, but that that thing is just an absolute rocket ship. So if they're equating it to a C63S, then I definitely should uh, get behind the wheel of one. I bet it, honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if the CT5 was better balanced chassis-wise and overall more engaging to drive. I yeah. can't even imagine hustling it around a corner. It is such a muscle car. <laughs> you know, it, it feels, although it's tight on the inside, it feels enormous. Whereas I feel like some of these German cars shrink around you. So the M3 had similar interior dimensions to this CT5. But, I mean, I was tossing that car all over the place. And the CT5 didn't give me that vibe at all. Mm. I, that being said, it's my boss's car. And I was... Uh, you know, I, I certainly would be uh, more conservative the way that I would drive it with him in the car versus on my own. Um, you know, oh, I, I liked something you said, Mike, the hot turbos in the V8. I don't know if everyone knows what that means, but it's the, the turbos being inside the V. And I think the look of that in an engine bay, it's unfortunate that we cover them because it looks really cool. It's a unique it does. look. It reminds me of a modified car, sort of a custom engine bay, right? And instead, it's got, well, it did have a warranty on it. So even better. Mike, I have to ask, is your E60 still in limp mode? Oh, no. That was um, taken care of this past autumn. It was the spark plugs and the coil packs, which is exactly what we suspected. And... I don't think I've driven it since that was done. I'm trying to think. No, I don't I don't think I have. I think it was just, uh, oh, wow, that was a lot. But I guess, uh, you know, because the car is getting on 18 years old now, because it's a February 2005 build date, um, about time to change all that out. Because you got to remember, when the car was acquired in 2016, it had 26,000 miles on it, and it was the lowest mileage E60 M5 I could find in the country at the time. So it kind of makes sense that all that stuff was original, and then just with wear and tear and, uh, you know, time, the passage of time, right, it uh, needed all that stuff done. Hey, sometimes it's a simple thing, spark plugs. Yep, well... I wish it was just that in 2017 when the freaking Vanos pump blew, but, uh, <laughs> you know, you that's, that's some, right? Yeah. I, I would say, while that hurt a lot, I think I've won all these successive cars just because I've gotten lucky on the buy and I've done okay on the sell in the two times that I've transacted in the past, call it four or five years. That's all anyone could really ask for, right? Right. We just want to be custodians and enjoy them while we can and, and try not to try not to pay too much for the experience. I think though, you know, I grew up with my dad being really focused on that. You know, how much did this cost you in at the end? And 
how much does it really matter, right? We pay for all the other pleasures in our life. And I think that, you know, you got to pay to play to, to enjoy these cars. You know, we pay to drink wine. We pay to go to nice restaurants. We pay to go on vacation. And fuck, a great car and a great drive is just as good as any of those things for me. Yeah, and that's funny you bring that up because, you know, from my experience, my dad was the complete opposite. He was the complete opposite. Yeah, you had – And me, like I have two cars that I will drive to the ground, and I've owned three in total that, you know, are with the intention of never getting any money back whatsoever. And I'm okay with that. Yeah, I, I grew up in an environment that's similar to Ryan. My father is not a car guy at all, and was always like, well, how much is this going to cost to run X, Y, Z? And it, it took me time to divorce myself from that idea and instead to just focus on the fact that life is not a waiting room and they're going to die one day, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. And I really had to pivot on how I viewed my E34, especially now that I don't drive it as much because I, like I said, I'm, I'm going to die one day, right? I'm just a custodian for the car and I have this preservation mentality, but you're just letting your life slip through your hands. If you don't use the things you have around you, there's no point in waiting. That's right. And hopefully we're not dying at the hands of the cars themselves, but maybe that's okay to go out that way as well. It wouldn't be so bad, you know, in a fiery blaze of glory. It depends. It depends on the situation. And there's definitely a balance to the the preservation versus usability. As a owner of a W123 that I daily drove through the winter for six years, I, I certainly regret not having more of a preservation mentality back then and, and you know making sure I got off salt and sand and, and stuff from my car on those wintry days when we actually did get snow here in the, the northeast mid-Atlantic region but um, as as it is you know rusting away but you know it's a balance for sure you got to use it and then don't um, don't think too much about it you know that's what they're intended to do. On the other hand how many smiles did you get on those snowy miles Stephen? Oh, I can remember yeah. one or two great times with you. Oh, yeah. Love driving that car in the winter. It's great on snow tires and, uh, yeah, easy to get the back end out and control with one hand. So (laughs) definitely do like donuts in the cul-de-sac of my street growing up whenever there was some fresh snow on the ground. Um, But I'd like to wrap up this podcast with a quote of Mike Venditti that I never thought I'd hear, and that is, loving turbos mike mike was always known for the phrase there's no replacement for displacement i swear i'm sober right now (laughs) driving the w205 changed my view that being said my next car will be naturally aspirated and the one after that looking forward to hear what the next one will be something for us to talk about next time right don't hold your breath your homework is to drive a, a Blackwing. <laughs> Good luck. Stephen Aziz, your homework. <laughs> or lame a homework, Tesla. which is to drive a Tesla. And that's why I'm still putting it off. <laughs> All right, guys. It was a pleasure. Thanks for coming on, Mike. And it was great to catch up with you. Have to hear more about your place in Maine. Hope, hopefully we can see you up there sometime this summer. Of course. Thanks for having me on, guys. Catch you soon. All right. Talk to you soon.
Later.